The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening. I hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plane Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at planecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Warwick Jones, who is going to talk about the Royal Aeronautical Society. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Warwick Jones. I've been helping run the um, Hamilton branch of the Royal Aeronautical Society for the last 35, 40 years, probably. Everyone asks, what is the Royal Aeronautical Society? Well, it's the oldest learned society and aviation society in the world. It started in 1866 when they only had hot air balloons, and we're just starting to experiment with heavier-than-air machines. A group of gentlemen, an aristocrat, meteorologist, a balloonist, a doctor, and an engine designer got together, and the idea was to further the science of aeronautics with the objective of getting a heavier than air machine airborne. And since then, of course, the society has been at the forefront of developments in aerospace ever since. Amongst its early members were the Wright brothers and Otto Linthiel, many other famous names like uh, Sidney Camp, Sir Frederick Handley Page were presidents, and today the society has over 17,500 members in 100 countries, as well as 35 branches in the UK. And it's presence in 15 other countries throughout the overseas divisional and branch networks. In New Zealand, we did have seven branches. We're now down to five. Um, unfortunately, Auckland's gone by the wayside in the last couple of years, but we've got the Hamilton branch, Palmerston North, Wellington, Blenheim, and Canterbury. 
the way we look at it now is we just say it's anything to enhance aviation. And that includes anything from model aeroplanes right up to space flight. So it's anything at all to do with aviation. So we cover the whole spectrum of the aviation fraternity. So my job really is each month uh, we meet at the Glenview Club in Hamilton, in Peacock Trade in Glenview there, and um, I try and get speakers from any area of the aviation fraternity to come and speak to us. I have had some of the gentlemen that are here, some of the old ones. I've had uh, Alan Peart and Smokey Strady you mentioned earlier. Um, we've had a couple of astronauts, uh, U-2 pilots and test pilots, and um, yeah, quite a few different people. What I try and do is mix it up because of the, we're covering the whole spectrum and get people from those different areas of aviation. So, uh, you're looking at general aviation, military, rockets, microlights, rotary wing, anything. Um, some of you might have gone to the flare exhibition they had at Tikofi a couple of years ago. Um, there were some interesting people there and I managed to get uh, three or four speakers from there. We had people in New Zealand making UAVs, um, ex-aircraft, um, the rocket men, and yeah, a lot of other people as well. In New Zealand, um, because we're not the same as the UK, we don't have the same infrastructure and we only have a small aircraft industry. Um, it's not quite the same, but if you're a professional and in the aviation industry like that, you can go through the Division of Council and sit papers and things and actually get full qualifications. There are about nine grades and you can go right up to what they call a fellow of the society. If you look at a lot of the um, military people here and um, the New Zealand people, you'll see their um, qualifications written in brackets normally after their names. Uh, one of the things we did as a society, back in 1999, we formed an aviation trust with St Paul's Collegiate School, and actually um, a group of our guys got alongside them there, and they built a Murphy Maverick aircraft, a Canadian microlight, and they um, formed a trust, and the students actually learned to fly on that out of Tikofi. Unfortunately, um, that only lasted a few years, and the structure changed a bit, the aircraft um, got damaged, but it ended up being brought by one of the students that learned to fly it, um, Stephen, and um, he's actually got it um, in pieces at the moment and he's doing a restoration of it, Stephen McGuire. The other thing that happened, of course, the late Ozzy James, who was our chairman and my mentor for many years, um, in November 2004, Ozzy got the replica of the Spitfire put up in Piranha Park in, by the memorial there. And, um, by the river in Hamilton, and that's still there for everybody to look at. The big day was uh, 29th September 2012 with the Mosquito KA144, which the gentleman here was speaking about earlier. Um, just to inform you, sir, that yeah, Glen Power wasn't missed out. It was our branch of the Hamilton Society that put forward his name and Warren Denholm and his wife from Aspects and they received meritorious service awards through our society um, at the end of 2013. And we made sure they did that because we visited him on numerous occasions. Every couple of years we try and do a couple of trips. And um, we, we know how much he's put into that 20 years of hard labour and um, dedication that um, yeah, no one else could.
would do. And as you say, he is the mosquito man and he will continue to be um, until him and Mike finish the one they're working on. Um, <clears throat> also, our specs are working on another one, of course. There's a um, T Mark III trainer model they're working on from the UK here at the moment. Um, so that'll be um, a bit more work for them too. And um, most of you'll know Glenn got a QSM in the last um, Queen's Birthday Honours, so that's good to the services of um, preserving aviation aircraft, historical aircraft. Uh, I just want to have a bit of a plug, really, um, for our society. I've got about 40-odd names, I suppose, on the books, but we're only averaging now about 24, 25 people to a meeting. Um, it was about 30 a few years ago, but unfortunately, you know, a lot of the older ones are just passing by and passing off, but we find it very hard now to get younger people interested. Um, we're planning to do a bit more with the schools, and some of the other branches have proper programs for that. I um, know some of them down the line are getting involved in science fairs and things. Um, I'm having a go through the air training corps here as well, so I'll be giving them a talk soon. But it's, um, I just think there's so many things on now, it's um, very hard to get them out. But the interest isn't sort of the same as it was when the society first started, where you had apprentices and people coming from the industry. Now, unfortunately, that just doesn't seem to happen. But So all I can ask really is if you people would ask some of your groups even if, you're, if they're interested in joining our society. Um, it's open to anybody. So most of the members, some of them are official divisional members. And to do that, you pay a fee um, to London and you receive a couple of magazines, the um, Aerospace Professional, Aerospace International, um, once a month, and you've got access to their library in, that, in, in London on the internet. In New Zealand here, most of, them, um, most of our group are just what we call associate members, and they're just anyone that has a general interest in aviation. But we all come from various backgrounds. Some of us are ex-military, some are pilots and that, some are just people that have an interest, a general interest in aviation, and would probably say they're just aviation enthusiasts. So, um, yeah, that's about it, really. Any questions? Yeah. You said something very important about young people not being interested. I think we have to look at ourselves. Because we are not promoting this to young people. I'm doing quite a lot with school, schools, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, not, not in this country, because I'm not here more. But I think the biggest mistake is that you're not promoting it into schools. You're not promoting Boy Scouts. Do you have Boy Scouts in this country? Yeah. No, you don't. We have Scouts. Well, no scouts. I don't think Girl Scouts are very interesting. Anyway, Scouts. And we're trying to do a lot of that, and it's getting better and better. But I think we've got to be very careful that we're not just an old boys network. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Too. Because we are an old boys network. And the other thing is, people like Glenn Powell, I am sure, if you go to a, do you have trade schools in this country where you learn to be a carpenter? Yes, but it's not like it used to be. I mean, we, it takes us four years to become a carpenter or a plumber, right? Yeah. And these trade schools, they go for visits and also go for practical work. 
a guy like Dean, if he opened his doors, and I'm sure he wants to, to a school class of maximum 10 people, we'd get a lot more interest in this all of us. Mm. And I'm sure he did, because I've already organized a couple of visits to the power place. And as long as you there have been a few programs. There's one they call the Young Eagles Club, but that was aimed primarily more at like um, at school cadets and at um, like flying schools. And, yeah. yeah, but even then, cadets, Navy Scouts. There is um, another part um, which is called Royal Aeronautical Trust um, as well, though, and that does help them. Areas like that. They have six different awards, and that also runs the Welsh Memorial Flying Scholarship. And that's just been on at Waitangi. It's on every year, and that's trained hundreds, probably thousands of young people to actually fly, men and women. So that's that's something that has been going for a number of years here, the young ones here. But um, yeah, sure, we're open to um, any suggestions. Mark, is yeah. there any really, um, uh, minimum age which you must be to join? Science? No, you can join uh, students. We only charge ten dollars a year for subs. There, our normal subs as associates is um, twenty-five dollars a year, and for a full divisional member, I think it's one hundred and thirteen. But our doors are open to anyone. I say, come along. We meet every. Uh, Fourth or fifth Wednesday of the month, normally, at the Glenview Club in Hamilton, starting at 7.30, um, officially at 8, and we go till 10 o'clock. Um, we have our own data projector and um, laptop and screen and that. Um, we also have our own aviation library, which we store there in a storage room. Um, <coughs> quite a good collection of books and a lot of videos and DVDs, and we just run a card system and loan them out to the members free of charge. My brother was a, a member of the Aeronautical Society as an engineer, mm -hmm. and uh, I've had the privilege as a result of that of having a look at the British Aerospace uh, International and the professional magazines. And if you want to keep up with the way things are going, uh, get those magazines. They're really cutting edge technology, drones, anything, yeah. all time uh, uh, strategies, and so on. Uh, to all of those magazines, I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, thank you. <coughs> Anyone else got any questions? Okay. Oh, it's been uh, my privilege to speak to you and your kindness to listen to me this afternoon, so thank you very much. Thank you, Warwick. Um, my late father was a member of uh, Warwick's branch and occasionally remembered to go to the meetings and occasionally he'd take me and I do remember some very good um, speakers and very good nights there and I'd highly recommend it. I really should get back into it myself but uh, one of these days, one of these days. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, coming up next we've got uh, Mel Salisbury who's going to tell us about her um, tour to England. Um, Bomber County Tour, um, which they run every year, or run a, run a variation of every year. So welcome, Mel. Right, hope you can all hear me. I'm not very loud, but I'll try. Um, 
What a great bunch of speakers we've had here today, and it's quite hard to follow up on all the experts and interesting people, um, but I'll do my best. What we aim to do is to take people over to the UK and show you the history of aviation and um, all the interesting stuff that can be seen over there. So basically, um, we're Aviation Tours NZ, and when I say we, that's my husband Kev at the back there, and myself. Um, I'm a travel agent, he's the aviation enthusiast, so what you've got to remember is all of the technical questions go in that direction and all of the looking after people and arrangements are in my hands, so between us it works quite well. How did the tours start? Um, we've been over here about nine years now and in 2009 I was working for a company called Frontier Travel. I uh, still am, except they were bought by travel managers, so I'm a general travel broker. Um, and they asked us to come up with some interesting ideas for a new website. Um, I was a bit stumped, and I said to Kevin, I don't know, what can we do? And he said, let's take people back to the UK, um, to some big air shows, you know. There's, there's a lot of different aircraft over there, to um, Australia and New Zealand, so that sounded like a good idea. We did a bit of research. At that time, nobody was doing anything similar. They had been previously, um, but then they weren't. So we put our first tour together. Um, from my point of view, it was actually quite easy making all the, the arrangements, because that's what I do anyway. Um, we had a bit of conflict. Kev obviously knew all of the places that we should go and visit. I'm the wife of an enthusiast, if you imagine it like that. And so he was saying, right, we've got to go here, 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 and here. And I was saying to him, well, that's just another aviation museum. You know, we've been to one of those already. And he'd be like, no, this is the fleet air arm. This is completely different. We've got to go there as well. So between us, it worked quite well. And what we did was put a tour together around the south of England, which is our home counties, all the places that we know very well, all the little places in between that we know very well. And so the first tour was launched, and that was called Planes, Trains and Autos. Um, we're quite lucky to have here today um, Roger, who came with us on the Planes, Trains and Autos tour. Um, we've got John, who came with us on the Bomber County tour. Um, and we've got future guest Paddy, who's coming. So it's nice to have somebody that's been with us all the way through our tours. The first tour um, we went on, we had three generations uh, tour with us, which was um, an older chap, a lady in her 40s, and her daughter, who was 14. And it was quite a privilege to take such a, a range of ages over and see how different people enjoyed the things that we were showing them. Um, and when we got back from that tour, This was the feedback we got. Um, and she said, not that, she said, thank you so much for making what we thought would be a good memorable trip into a totally enjoyable, fascinating, informative, once in a lifetime set of experiences for Dad, Laura and me. I know we couldn't have done this all without your planning, forethought and continual help. We'll miss you both, especially the laughs. So coming back from our first ever trip that we'd put together 
Um, and having feedback like that, it really spurred us on and we just thought this was brilliant. We love it. We love taking people and sharing what there is to see in the UK. Um, and people have spoken earlier about um, going, traveling with other people because you can, at the end of the day, sit back and share stories, share what you've seen. People are so interesting, and, and especially people like us, or you, with all the history and the interesting stories. So just sharing that at the end of the day over a, a beer or a glass of water, if that's your thing, um, it just makes it more interesting. And, you know, I've had people say to me before, well, I can do all that, and I can go all those places myself, you know, and it's cheaper. Well, it can be a bit cheaper, not much, I have to say, but it's the, the sharing, I think, when you travel with a group. You're sharing all those experiences, so, yes, people can go and do it themselves, but I think you miss out on quite a lot when you're not with a group. So husband and wife team means we can look after everybody. So we get, generally we get half couples travel with us and half gents on their own. Occasionally a, a lady on her own, but not usual. Um, but it's really good because then the men tend to want to be in the museum all day, you know, hard at it. The women, maybe by lunch, <laughs> maybe by lunchtime, the ladies have had a good look, and that's enough, and that's fine. So we can go off and do something else, you know. We can pop into the town or whatever. So the men get the benefit of having all the time they want to do what they want, and, and the ladies are happy as well. So it works well for the couples and the, the chaps on their own. And you might think, oh, husband and wife team—that's a bit dodgy. We're okay, we've been married 26 years, but we are still at the okay stage. Um, and it, it, brings to, <laughs> it brings to mind a comment Kev made once. Last year we went up to Auckland and we got on a, a short P&O cruise around and we took my mum and dad up and our two teenage kids. So there were six of us and we travelled up in our seven-seater wagon. <laughs> mum and dad had a bit of a bicker on the way up. As you do, not nothing serious. But anyway, by the time we got up and we got on the ship, we were just going up the stairs to get settled in. And Kev said to me, for goodness sake, if the ship sinks, don't get in the same lifeboat as them. <laughs> <laughs> but that's all right, because we're not there yet. We're not there yet. <laughs> um, so for the first three years, 2010, 11 and 12, we did the planes, trains and autos tour. And that basically, as I say, covers the south of England um, in, in a sort of a big circle around London, taking in places like Bewley, the National Motor Museum. Um, they've got quite a good exhibit there of the special operations, really interesting. Um, there's um, an abbey and a palace house, so quite a huge range of things to see in there. We go to Yeovilton. Um, Flying Legends is the air, main air show of that one with the International Air Tattoo as well. We go to the Bluebell Railway, the Romney, High and Dimchurch Railway, which is a, a third scale um, trip up and down. Tangmere. Tangmere is one of my favourites, actually, because there's so much personal memorabilia there. Um, it's quite a small museum compared to some, but it's so personal and it's quite moving. I expect a lot of you have been to a lot of these places and, and will be remembering anyway. Uh, Portsmouth, the Navy Dockyard. That's a good visit. Um, Victory Warrior and the brand new Mary Rose Museum, which we haven't seen yet. They were building that when we were there last. 
um, and Brooklands. Brooklands is a great trip, and right next to that's the Mercedes Museum. Now, we probably wouldn't go there on its own, but the fact that it's right next door, it means you can walk around and have a good look at that as well. Um, and Hendon, RAF Hendon. So that's on our uh, planes, trains, and autos tour. Now, we did that for three years, and then we had people wanting to come back again. Um, and all the time you're doing the same thing, you're not going to get people travel with you again. So in 2013, we put a new tour together called Bomber County, travelling up northwards into Lincolnshire. We always have the same driver as well, which is really nice. So we've all got to know him, and people that travel again with us know him. He's like a, an old friend. Um, he's a good laugh. There's always something interesting happens with him driving. On our first tour, we arrived at our hotel in Butler's Hard, a beautiful country setting. They'd made a space for our coach to park up, and we came. We were in a great big red coach, turned into the car park, and just as we were pulling along behind the parked cars, there was this almighty great bang, and we'd been reversed into. So, because everybody's looking out the window to see what was going on, and a chap got out of his car and said, I'm sorry, mate, I didn't see you. And he was in a great big red coach. He was in a, an Aston Martin, DB9, was it, Kev? Yeah. Um, so, anyway, that just shows you what kind of hotels we stay at, basically. If you're going to get reversed into, it's going to be an Aston Martin. So. That's a good sign. But yeah, we've had a few incidents with the coach. He's quite funny. He's knocked a few signs off and things like that. One of which we picked up and presented to him at dinner one time. <laughs> he's probably still got that up on his bedroom wall. Um, so anyway, he's always our driver, which is really good. And he goes wherever we want. And that's another good thing with the flexibility. Um, if we say, can we do this or can we do that, he'll basically do what we ask. Um, and one time we... We're coming into Portsmouth, and just before Portsmouth is Emsworth, and Sir Peter Blake is buried there, which Kevin and I didn't know, actually. And some of our guests said, can we just pop in here um, and pay our respects? So we found the little churchyard. We all got off the coach, I think there were 24 of us. We searched this graveyard, and we could not find his grave. And we ran out of time, so we had to go to the hotel for dinner. But the following morning, I phoned through to the church warden, and I said, look, we're you know, a bunch of New Zealanders. We want to stop and pay our respects. Where is he? So they gave us a description of where his grave was, and we went back the following morning. And it was there. I don't know how we can find it. I don't know. But it had the little um, the flag and the little red socks, which I think are quite significant. Um, so we, we stayed there for a little while, but I think people were quite pleased that we'd done that. So, Bomber County, um, this year we went in September, so we did the Duxford Air Show and uh, Goodwood Revival, which is a pretty amazing event, um, but next year we're going to go in July again, oh sorry, it's this year now, isn't it? We're going in July again so that we can go back to Flying Legends, and in fact, in the two and a half to three weeks that we'll be touring our four major air shows, so we've got... RAF Waddington, Flying Legends, the International Air Tattoo, and then after the tour, straight after the tour, is Farnborough. So for those that are really keen, you know, there's the chance there for four air shows. Three are within our tour dates. So we're also going to visit RAF Cosford, the Shuttleworth Collection, Yorkshire Air Museum, the National Rail, 
Museum in York. We go to Scampton. Uh, this year we were lucky enough to see the Red Arrows in situ, so that was a really good visit because uh, they're together. We've got Uxbridge, which was mentioned earlier, and we go down into the bunker, the plotting rooms. Um, Lynx Aviation Heritage Centre, um, and we've got six people that are going to ride in Just Jane on the taxi ride. Now those places sell out a year ahead practically, so we're quite lucky to have those and I've got more on wait list. Um, now this chap here who we were talking to earlier, I think, that used to own, was that you sir? Did you yeah. used to uh, part own Just yeah. Jane? Yeah, that's when it. When I was at school, there were a group of 30 of us who brought it back from New Caledonia. Yeah. It's the sister ship to the one at my It home. is, yeah, good history then. Oh, nice to meet you. We also go to the Battle of Britain uh, Visitors Centre, Newark Air Museum, uh, Bletchley Park, which I expect most of you know about, um, and we're not doing Goodwood Revival. Um, Newark's pretty good because they have a lot of open cockpits there and you can get in. Um, we scrambled up into the Vulcan and somebody was saying about how small they are and, and however the pilots managed to get in to fly those things. I mean, you know, the, the skinny boned pilots that you saw would be the only ones that would get up in there, even though that's a bit later. But yeah, it's quite good to get in. I think, John, you clambered into quite a few of those, didn't you? Yes. Various cockpits. So that was Bomber County this year. Next year's a very similar tour. Um, Flying Legends and the International Air Tattoo are on both at the same weekend, so it means that you have to work everything around it. <coughs> but we've done it, we've done it. Um, one of our favourite hotels is the Petwood Hotel, um, AKA 617 Squadron Leaders Mess, Squadron Officers Mess. Um, but it's a beautiful hotel with such an amazing history um, and lots around it. Um, we really wanted to stay there again this year, so we've had to also work the tour around the dates they could accommodate us. Um, so we're there for two nights right at the end of the tour. So, um, yeah, it's going to be a good year. We've got 17 booked. We'd probably take 20, 24 max, so it's looking like being a good year. We need photographers with us. My photos are rubbish. I take pictures of sky with a little dot in the corner. It's uh, notoriously bad, but usually we get somebody coming with those big lenses. <laughs> Actually, one of my favourite things is at Flying Legends, or at any of the air shows, is when the aircraft come over, is to watch all of the photographers and see that great big whoosh of clicking going across like that. That's pretty good. Apart, apart from that, seeing 12 or 16 Spitfires up in the air. But um, yeah, it's pretty good. So. Yeah, more information, I've got some flyers over there, you can talk to us afterwards or check out the website www.aviationtoursnz.com So, any questions? I've got a tip for you. A tip, go on. There's a website called BBMF. Yep. Uh, Collinsby. Yep. And if you look at that website, you can see where the planes are every day. Oh yes, yeah, because we visit there and when no, I plan no, the tour, we don't know what's going to be in. No, but you can in the house. On the side, and you can say, "Oh, on Tuesday they're in Gloucester." Yeah, not so far ahead though. We, I yes, do I that. Already see it now. Well, they told us last year they were going to be in, but the lank had to go off. Yeah, it did. Bad weather meant the lank had to clear off out, so we didn't get to see the um, Lancaster. But hey, we got to see enough other Lancasters, so that was. I'll give you a tip if you want one, which you won't find on the way or anywhere else. Go on then. Don't play with rattlesnakes. 
Don't eat yellow snow. You mentioned Fairford, which you're going to. Yes. So you're going pretty close to Little Rizzy, which the Red Arrows were at their training base in Little Rizzy before <coughs> Scampton. Yeah. If you go into Little Rizzy Church, there's a colored glass window in the church dedicated to the Red Arrows, including them in oh, formation nice. Yeah. You won't find that anywhere because the church don't want loads of visitors in there. Oh, no. They're going to get well worth it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. Yes, yeah. I mean, we learn each year. We learn. That's how you do learn. Two two uh, places we visit. Uh, two pubs, in fact, with the all the pilots signatures <coughs> on the ceiling. Those places are nice to go into as well. <coughs> so yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. It's a good one. It really is. Just saying, one other point. You said you're going to Newark for uh, bottle ones and ligature. Yes, we do. We stay in Lincoln and we make sure everybody gets in to look at that. It's quite nice in there, isn't it? Dedicated to New Zealand pilots and servicemen, so that's pretty good. Can you join the tour? Yes, you can. Yeah, we've got a land only package. Some people like to travel before us. We've got a flexible end of tour flight, so. It's better to go with the group and then change the date back and come back on your own later. But if people need to go earlier, they can join us in London. Uh, we've got some Australians coming this year. Um, they're actually going to fly to Auckland and meet us and then fly straight back. Um, so we're quite flexible. Um, and if you just want to do a land-only package and completely your own flights, then you just meet in London. And, um, My family is very suspicious now when I say, oh, down this road is a very, very good <laughs> yeah, Lincolnshire's pretty good, actually. Well, yeah. Well, okay. Very flexible. Um, Auckland <coughs> to Auckland, 19 days. Yeah, so we're sort of 15 days touring in the UK. We stop in Hong Kong on the way over, and then you can choose if you want to stop on the way back. Actually, I was going to read you, if I've got time, thinking about trying to please people. As a travel agent, that's what you do. You try and match people's <coughs> expectations with their arrangements so that they uh, will try and better their expectations. But that's not always very easy. This is a few complaints received by ABTA, um, Association of British Travel Agents. Um, and they received these, these supposed genuine complaints here. My fiancé and I booked a twin-bedded room, but we were placed in a double-bedded room. We now hold you responsible for the fact that I find myself pregnant. <laughs> this would not have happened if you'd put us in the room that we booked. <laughs> it's your duty as a tour operator to advise us of noisy or unruly guests before we travel. I think it should be explained in the brochure 
that the local store does not sell proper biscuits like custard creams or ginger nuts. <laughs> Topless sunbathing should be banned on the beach. The holiday was ruined as my husband spent all day looking at other women. <laughs> my favourite. A tourist at a top African game lodge overlooking a waterhole who spotted a visibly aroused elephant complained that the sight of this rampant beast ruined his honeymoon by making him feel inadequate. <laughs> now there's no amount of, of planning or questioning that would let me know that that was likely to be a problem. We do try. We try to make the tour leisurely but have plenty in it so that um, you know, we, we make the most of our time. Sorry, just one other question. Yeah. Do you, what about inbound tourists into New Zealand? Do you do no, we don't. At the moment, we just do this one tour every year, and we plan to keep doing that for as long as people come. Jonathan and I have seen streams of people coming through the doors, yeah. and they're all basically floating around this country, you know, through Not knowing what to do. I have thought about it. We've also been asked if we'll go to, or we'll take a plan a tour to Oshkosh and various other places, but we're doing what we know, and we're comfortable with that. It would take a massive amount of planning for me to put something else together. Um, there's a lady that does Oshkosh tours already. She's in Tarong with us as well anyway. And actually she works for travel managers who I work for. So we're sort of colleagues. Um, so I don't see any point in trying to do something that somebody else has been doing for years. So at the moment, it's just this. But Somebody has said before that we should bring people so in. They ask us, and they yeah. can we go? Well, here in, in Australia, I mean, between the two, there's some pretty good stuff going on. So uh, maybe I'll give that some more thought and have a talk to you about that and see what we can do. Definitely. Yeah. Read the, uh, the part that you were talking about it's called the Blue It is. It's wonderful. My auntie's just taking that part of the ship. Oh, really? Excellent. It's, it's a tiny little old, goodness knows how old pub it is, um, just with three or four rooms. Um, but the history on the ceiling in that place is incredible. It's, it's incredible. So we will be stopping there again every time we're going north, definitely. You might like to mention the uh, person who they were helping Can you remember his name? No, I can't. No. When we were there, this, this old chap, was signing his name, and I really wish, I could probably find out, and I think I did write it down, I can't remember, but he was there, and you can imagine how difficult, low ceiling pubs anyway, because that's the nature of the old building, but he was stood up on this chair with his daughter, I imagine, trying to sign his name on the thing with a, a whole bunch of people around him, including most of us, helping him not fall off the chair. Uh, but he was there and he signed his name on the ceiling, so that obviously made a He's mess. a navigator with 617. A navigator with 617. And he was 91. Can't remember his name, unfortunately. But I think <coughs> Prince William's up there. The, um, yeah, the yeah, the McGregor brothers. Um, and yeah, he was a pilot. And also there's a pub in Cambridge with the same thing um, where we have dinner, so yeah. Okay, I expect my time's up now, is it? Thank you. Thank you, Mel. I hope you um, get a few more come with you on the tours out of this. So, so time to introduce Iggy Wood.
Thank you very much. Good afternoon, uh, everyone. I'll just turn over the pages here of things that I put down. You titled my talk as The Memories of a Fighter Pilot. Well, um, you don't want all of the memory because there's not very much of it uh, <laughs> uh, left there. Afternoon, everyone. I'm Eggie Wood. Uh, I uh, was christened Ian George, but when I joined the Air Force, there were uh, four of us as Office Cadet Wood, uh, so it very quickly became initials. I-G-G-J-G-L-J-A and uh, mine converted to Iggy shortly thereafter and so my wife and children and so on know me by no other name other than Iggy uh, so uh, everyone says where the heck did that come from well there you go uh, you've got it and uh, I have uh, lived with that name uh, ever since and quite gladly so I first met uh, Brian here in about uh, 68 or 69 and uh, we compared log books and sure enough there was uh, the Harvards that you had flown uh, in the log book there and I think you let me loose in the 172 or something like that. Auckland Flying School was it? No, it uh, was <coughs> Manukau or Rex Manukau or Delafin King or... Oh, Manu Manukau. One of those. Yes, Manukau at that stage, yes. Thank you very much for uh, having the trust in me then. I first, <coughs> I first soloed uh, in a glider at Ardmore um, in 1965 and uh, as a, as a schoolboy and we'd written our Chris Fraser and I who's just uh, finished uh, as a 747 skipper because he's turned 65 um, as uh, he and I would get on our bicycles and ride out to Ardmore uh, to go flying and uh, we soloed in the middle of that year. I joined the Air Force straight from school in 1967 and served through until 1998 when I reached my use by date of 50 and was uh, thrown out of the uh, the Air Force. I did my wings course on Harvards and Devons um, at Wigram after having had a, a year at um, Canterbury University where I got an A for attendance um, but uh, no other marks that were suitable for any other award and uh, so I spent a little time as a librarian waiting for a wings course to, uh, to start. After the wings course I was posted to uh, vampires at, at Ahakia, and so that was day fighter ground attack. So I dare say that qualifies as the memories of a fighter pilot then, uh, where I flew the, uh, uh, the vampire. The, the two-seat was the T-11, uh, the T-55s had gone by that stage, and so at least we had the luxury of an ejection seat in the two-seat trainer, but the single, the FB-5, was still a parachute strapped on your bottom, and you had to jettison the canopy and climb out. Compared with modern day ejection seats too, the, uh, the ejection seats then were uh, very good but lacked the performance of a modern ejection seat. Uh, and the T11 Vampire, the, uh, the drill for ejecting was to uh, retract the gun sight, uh, jettison the canopy and then pull the face blind because it didn't have a seat pan handle, uh, pull, the, pull the face blind to eject and the ejection minima, now the 00 seat is the norm so you can eject at zero speed at, uh, on the ground um, and then you get into something like the Mackie with one undercarriage leg, nose wheel or either main collapsed and you've still got the performance to get out, get a good shoot and get on the ground. Uh, the Vampire one had to be doing 120 knots, 200 foot level flight uh, in order for it to be successful. <coughs> the Vampire was a great aeroplane to fly. Uh, it certainly taught you to add up your five fuel gauges to figure out how much gas you'd burnt 
because I, whilst I don't know in litres per hour, you can do, uh, we could do the sums, probably work it out, but it was about 670 gallons an hour that it would burn at flat chat, and you carried only 330. So um, you could run out of gas pretty quickly. And a standard low-level navigation exercise at 240 knots uh, was 42 minutes, and you had to be breaking into the circuit then because you were down to your minimum fuel of 60 gallons, uh, which gave you enough height, enough gas to do the circuit, probably another one, and then a climb, climb ahead to bail out altitude uh, before the engine flamed out. So the memory that I have of the Vampire, lovely little aeroplane to fly. Um, I, uh, we didn't get too much into the tactics of things and so on then, and I want to talk a little bit about that uh, as we go along, because it was very much a, um, what do you mean, get in position, get up, um, and the number two was always the one who was, who was out of position. And we developed the training of fighter pilots a whole lot more over the years. Then I was onto the, uh, the Skyhawk after the two years or so on the Vampire, onto the Skyhawk, which was a relatively new aircraft in New Zealand service. They'd arrived whilst I was flying Vampires, and of course they, uh, uh, I was on the third New Zealand course, and there were only uh, two other courses of four pilots uh, in front of me, plus the original ones who went to the, the team who went to the States and trained on them. The Skyhawk had an A in it, which of course in American nomenclature is A for attack. Uh, so in other words, it was a, a, fi a, a fighter bomber was what it was sold as, but it had the A prefix in it, which meant that it was attack. So it was a, a mud mover, basically, dropping bombs, firing rockets uh, at the ground. And we didn't want to restrict it to that task. We wanted to use it as a fighter as well as an attack aircraft. My last flight as a squadron pilot in the, in the Skyhawk was uh, in February of 74. And I flew in a two-seat Skyhawk, TA-4. Uh, we went to uh, Volkner Range, so from Harkir up to Volkner, did some bombing there, and then back to uh, uh, Harkir, where I was restricted on the speed at which I could go into the last buzz and break, uh, because I had the emergency generator out, um, and you were restricted to 500 knots, I think, with the emergency generator out. And so I couldn't be very fast in the last flyby uh, of my Skyhawk career. Some of you may know Cliff Jinks uh, of Aviation Historical fame. Uh, he was in the back seat and come along for the ride with me. I learned a few things on the Skyhawk. There were the international deployments uh, and so on, which was all good fun. But I also learned a little bit about aerodynamics. The, uh, the Skyhawk had slats on the leading edges, or has slats on the leading edges of the wing. They are not controlled in any way by the pilot other than by the angle of attack that you are put on the aeroplane at the time. So when you see the aircraft sitting on the ground, the slats are hanging out, and they hang down about uh, a foot or so as they move out on their rails. And you push them back up, in and out, to check that they run freely on their rails, else they might not react smoothly in flight. We had some engineers who were pretty bloody skilled at making those things go well. We talked to the Singaporeans who had them, the American Navy, the Marines, they all, and the Israelis, and they all had trouble rigging the bloody slats on these things. And our guy said, piece of piss, all you've got to do is do it properly. <laughs> and, uh, <coughs> and so we had uh, very, very good uh, slat operations, but that didn't um, stop you from being interested in how they worked. The first sort of experience in knowing how they worked as a pilot uh, was when you went out for your first formation takeoff. Lined up there on the runway, and of course the slats are hanging out fully, and that's the only way you'd ever seen them. 
Uh, you couldn't see them from the cockpit unless you used the mirrors. And hell's teeth, I didn't have enough time at that early stage of conversion to be looking backwards at all. I, I was still trying to catch up with the aircraft to get back in the cockpit. And uh, so um, looking at the slats on the other aircraft that you've lined up with. Power up at the start of the, uh, the runway, brakes off full power. Because uh, if you applied full power with the brakes on, the, uh, the wheels would stay stationary. Uh, the tyres, uh, the wheels would stay stationary, the aeroplane would just skid on its tyres down the runway. So you had to make sure you let the brakes go before you put full power on. And uh, away you go. But the inertia of the start of the roll, the slats would go back fully into the wings. So you've got both slats coming back fully into the wings. And then at about 45, 50 knots, uh, the, um, uh, they start to fly a wee bit and the acceleration has dropped off a little bit. So the slats come out to about uh, sort of two thirds, three quarters of the way out. And they're sitting there and then as you hit rock, going down the runway, the slats are all rocking independently of everything else. And you're trying to hang in formation and watch these slats working and so on. And then it comes time for rotate to get airborne. And the slats, which were uh, back to about one third the distance out of that stage, suddenly come right out of it, trying to get some lift out of the air to, uh, to get the aircraft off the ground. And as you accelerate away, retracting undercarriage and trailing edge flap, the slats finally go back in at about 250 knots as you get to climb speed. And to me, that was hugely interesting to watch the behaviour of those things. And I had to be reminded by my instructor, Christ's sake, he meant to be flying in formation, not, not just watching the aerodynamics on that other aeroplane. <laughs> and uh, he said, I thought your mind must have been elsewhere. And when I explained to him uh, how that was going. The other thing I learned about slats was quite a lot later. I'd been up at Kuiper Air Weapons Range up here to the north of Auckland, night bombing. And I, I don't know why, but I was an individual aeroplane at that stage, so maybe the flight leader hadn't worked or, or whatever. And uh, so I was travelling home. And of course you've had all the excitement of night bombing up at Baulkner, which I'll talk about in a moment. Um, but uh, then you're on your way back and you're up at uh, probably, I think, about 30-odd thousand feet going home. And it's 20 minutes in the cruise. Well, what do you do with 20 minutes in the cruise after you're all hyped up there from this night bombing uh, bit? Well, of course, you don't tell anyone about it because it's probably not authorised, but you try flying upside down. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly there's bump, bump, in the airframe. Holy hell, what's happening? You roll back up the right way again, and it's all the engines operating normally, oil pressure, temperatures, so on, all that, but you've still got this vibration, and a bang, and a shaking, and so on, and your airspeed's dropping, so you're applying more power to try and keep up the airspeed. And then there's no way that you can hold the altitude. So you're busy negotiating with John here, your traffic control, coolly, calmly saying, request a lower uh, cruising altitude, blah, 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 and they clear you down lower, so you're drifting down lower. Then you've got your torch out, and you shine it in the mirror. You shine it in the mirror. You can get it looking back at the flap and your slat, and you can see the slat. Christ, the slat on that side's fully out. So is that one. Both slats are fully out, and they're meant to be fully retracted at this stage. So then you do a little bit of thinking about the aerodynamics of when you were inverted and the fact that you've flown the Skyhawk inverted quite a lot, but you're normally doing 400 knots or so down low level, and up there your indicated airspeed's only about 220 or something like that. And at the lower speed, uh, the slats have come out and then stalled when you roll back up the right way, and they won't go back in. So, how to do about that? So, after negotiating a lower cruising altitude, because with all the drag we couldn't stay up at that height, uh, we, that's the aeroplane and me, uh, I descended and slowed down and the slats started to fly again and they retracted so then I could just uh, pop back up to altitude and, and carry on. So of course being a, um, 
a fighter pilot who could do no wrong and so on, you, you kept quiet and didn't tell anyone about that experience because you, you thought you'd be reamed for being a bloody idiot. Um, and uh, so um, a couple of nights later, there's an aeroplane there and it's parked on the, uh, the flight line and the guy's saying, it's uh, unserviceable, so don't bother going out to it for the next sortie, you see. So oh, what happened? He said, oh, something wrong with the slats. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I wandered out and had a look at the aeroplane. There's something wrong with the slats, all right. The bloody rails, uh, when they go back up into the wings on the, uh, the rollers and so on, the outer ones were ripped out of the uh, upper surface of the wing. <laughs> you know that bugger who tried to fly upside down on the way home? <laughs> it wasn't the same tail number as the one that I'd flown upside down and had the problem. But the way that he did it was he thought he'd rearrange the slats by just doing this <laughs> on the control cord. And of course they came back in without the aerodynamic uh, cushioning to, uh, to slow them down on the way back in. And they came back in it far too fast for the design and, uh, and damaged the, uh, the, both uh, wings of the aircraft. So that was, uh, I dare say we then had to admit to the fact that yes, a couple of others of us have had that problem as well. We then talked about how we solved the problem airborne. Uh, first of all, we got the boot in the bum for doing it. Then you could solve the problem, how you solved it airborne, so if we had it in the future, people would know, don't arrange it there aerodynamic, you know, uh, slow down and let them come back in more like a normal takeoff. The, uh, the big thing that happened after I'd been flying the aeroplane. On the first trans-Tasman that I did, uh, there, as we got to the other end, we had no navigation aids to assist us en route. So really it was just like Chichester and so on went, but slightly better met forecasting. But basically it was a compass heading for the time and uh, hope that you got to the other end. We had a P3 that was giving us, uh, Ryan, that was giving us navigational advice en route uh, there. Um, and we got to the other end, you've got TAC and lock-on, which is the VOR equivalent, so you're getting a radial and a distance from the, the station. And um, I think um, Richmond was the closest TAC and station to, uh, uh, and that was where we were going to land. 150 miles out, we got that, and we're only uh, 15 radials off the, um, off the thing, so only about 25 miles off track. So you say, oh, good one, good boy. You know, within 25 miles after 1,200, that's pretty good. And uh, this day and age, of course, if you're that far off track, there'd be international incidents filed against you and all that sort of thing, because with the updated Skyhawk, I did a Tasman crossing in it later, and about every 200 miles, the, uh, the aircraft would do this. Well, first of all, the autopilot was working, uh, which was a bit of a, a difference from in the days when I flew them. The autopilot was notoriously unreliable. Um, but uh, do a little jink like this, you think, oh, it's just changed heading. Uh, that must be a turning point. I'll make a position report here. Um, and uh, if you got to the other end, if the, uh, if the aircraft was 200 metres out in its position, you thought it's bloody inaccurate today. Um, and that was the sort of accuracy that came around with the upgrade of the aircraft in the, in the early 90s. If it had still been in service, and it wouldn't be by now because we would have run out of fatigue life in it, uh, that sort of accuracy was quite good. But remember, that was built in the days when a 286 computer was the brand new spanking thing off the line. And so with <coughs> modern technology and so on, just how much more accurate it can get. That was done with an inertial navigation system, so no input from the outside world at all, just on where it was when it started and where it felt it had been. I say where it felt it had been because that's what accelerometers do. They feel accelerations and, uh, and derive the nav position that way. That sort of accuracy, the change in accuracy in the nav position, was exactly the same sort of thing that happened with our accuracy with weapons delivery as well. When I was there, we'd come down the slope, down the slope, down the slope, dropping 
six or eight practice bombs, maybe a dozen practice bombs on each uh, weapon sortie so that we could get in the groove so as we knew what it felt like to be right. In the modern uh, aircraft, you just put the, uh, the aiming point on the target and you can manoeuvre and turn and so on and then you get the, um, the crossbar come, the track bar come, or the crossbar comes up the track line until it says you're within range. You then press the consent button and do the pull or turn or whatever and the weapon is dispatched from the aircraft at the time it's going to hit the target. Um, our bombing averages on the squadron uh, came down to um, about a quarter of what they were before, a quarter of the, the distance. So if the squadron average was a circular area of probability of 25 metres before, it came down to about 8 metres after the upgrade. Our air-to-air -air weapon score, we used exactly the same gun, uh, exactly the same aircraft, um, and our average air-to-air -air gunnery score for the squadron went from 4% to 22% on the little 30 foot by four foot by six foot target uh, that we'd shoot at in the air. So those were the, um, the advances that were made in how well we could use the aircraft. Heard here you're talking about milling over the target, uh, circling over the target, waiting for it to be illuminated or something like that. Well, tactics had progressed uh, a bit since then and our philosophy, uh, to put it rather crudely, was one pass all ass. Uh, so you'd be in at high speed, uh, in the dive or whatever and then depart, never turning around to come back. You didn't want to light up the defences uh, anymore to come in against you. I take my hats off to the people who uh, in days gone by had to mill round over the target waiting for their slot uh, or something like that because all it did was give um, a huge amount of opportunity to you being uh, uh, attacked and uh, being brought down. We talked about anti-shipping anti uh, tactics and so on as well. We would aim to use the, um, the ship's defence, we would aim to stay below it, uh, so we'd take off in complete radio silence, no transmissions from the, uh, the aircraft uh, after start, um, no um, walkie-talkies on the flight line at all because if the enemy were listening, they could hear that you were starting and all that sort of stuff, so it was all done on hand signals or by mouth-to-mouth -to -mouth, uh, communication. and. Um, uh, we'd taxi and start go on a, a, on a light and um, fly out the aircraft. No TACAN on, so there's no radar emission, no radar on, um, and uh, try to be absolutely silent that way. If we're attacking a ship fleet, we'd try and stay uh, below the radar horizon all the time, and then once we got inside about uh, 12 miles, which was probably where the first radar would be able to pick you up, um, you could then pop up a bit, so you'd be down to 50 feet uh, before that. You could pop up a little bit then because it gave you the ability to manoeuvre. Uh, you'd also arrange to be coming in from all directions, as you, as you talked about there as well. And so you'd be coordinated very closely to a time on target with which your navigation gear you could do very accurately. And you'd get these guys to pop up over here and then they go down and they turn away. And you'd hope that the ships were all looking that way and of course you'd be coming from not quite 180 out because that was too easy to guess but you'd be coming from 160 or 90 out uh, from them and you could pop and do a spoof uh, as well, go back down to um, uh, then and you'd let the other guys in through the back door where they were the, the last ones to be seen by the fleet. You'd know what engagement ranges uh, you had from the fleet that you were attacking, what they had and you'd work out that uh, if they were predicting where you were going to be at uh, 6 miles, 6,000 yards or whatever where they'd get around out to you, you'd aim to not be there. So you'd give them the, 
as you came in, if they were getting rounds out to, uh, to 6,000 yards, uh, you had to do 8,000, 7,000 predictably, and then have turned off by the time you got to 6,000, so hopefully the rounds weren't meeting you. Much the same happened for our ground attack tactics as well. So uh, it was applied across there. And by golly, we learned a whole lot about uh, that over the era that I was in the Air Force. If I may, to, uh, to, uh, just before I uh, do a, a little bit of advertising, um, I'll tell you about night bombing. Night bombing in the Skyhawk was without doubt the scariest thing I have ever done. Uh, we night bombed in a 30 degree dive. We'd roll in at uh, eight and a half thousand feet or so, aiming for a three and a half thousand foot weapons release, and bottoming at about uh, 15 to 1800 feet. We'd aim to release at 450 knots, and for those trigonomists amongst us, you can figure out that our rate of descent at release was 24,500 feet a minute. And uh, so about a two second pause at release height, and you would hit the ground. <coughs> You know about trying to sight up a target and how you're doing all the adjustments. Some stages it runs absolutely smoothly. Roll out, there it is, it's all going as predicted. Good, weapons release, pull out. Other stages you're, holy hell, where am I? Crikey, release height, pull. You're, you're doing 480, you're doing 8 miles a minute. Yes. Yeah. Four, 450s, yeah. So 427. Mm. Yeah. You're certainly getting towards the target, all right. And uh, you didn't want to be there as well. Something that wouldn't happen today. I was coming back from Faulkner, there were four of us in Skyhawks, and uh, there was a Mount Cook flight doing Mount Cook to Rotorua direct. That was HS748. And uh, we were on the same radio frequency, and the guy said, I've got a whole bunch of United States Navy Marines down the back here. He said, can you show us, show us your A4s? So we said, yes sirree. <laughs> <laughs> so they were, they were coming northbound at 16,000 feet. We were up at 25 or 30 or something heading back home. And so just a quick whisk around the corner from help from the radar guys at Ahakia and a pair of Skyhawks on each wing of the 748. And there's all these little people looking through the window. Oh, you at us? And so on there. And we were, uh, we were pretty happy with that and uh, so were they. And, uh, of course, I couldn't see that happening, particularly post 9-11 days uh, as well. But even now on the, um, on the civil bit, uh, there could never have happened, I don't think, at any other place. I'm pretty fortunate uh, uh, now that I've married into a, um, an aviation family. My wife does not like uh, uh, aircraft, um, really. She's a reluctant passenger, but supports me in my enthusiasm for it. Her father was a pilot with uh, well, wartime, flew Whitley Fives um, out, of, uh, out of various parts of the UK, um, flying instructor in Scotland after he'd done all his ops, and then went across to Canada training Royal Navy pilots, uh, who did a lot of flying instruction in Harvard. He then came back, was released back to the RNZAF where they said, good, you've got bomber experience and flying training experience, go and fly Catalinas. <laughs> so he earned his second DFC on Catalinas in the, in the islands. Brother-in-law's got uh, an 01 Bird Dog, a Stearman, a Mooney 20F, a Yak 52, and he's rebuilding a, a Lockheed 1011. Uh, so um, I'm looking forward to, uh, to flying in the 1011 when it's up and running. It's a couple of years away. Christmas time, isn't it? That's when your aeroplane's going to be? Yeah, that's right. In the air? Christmas. Yep. That's right. That's when his is going to be uh, in the air as well. 
Now, those of you who know me may know that I can tell a bit of a story from time to time. And so um, uh, my wife Diana is a communications person and uh, she said, um, come on Iggy, you've got to write these stories down. And I said, oh, I'm not, you know, two finger typist, uh, all that sort of stuff. And she said, well, you just tell me a story every morning tea time and I'll write the book. And so over a couple of years I wrote uh, dictated stories to uh, Diana, told her the, the yarns and she's put them together in a book. If it looks anything like Richard Stowe's books on Bomber Baron and so on, that is no fluke. Uh, we um, uh, modelled the, the format on that uh, exactly, and it's even produced uh, here in Hamilton by um, Print House um, as well, and we published in the, in the middle of the year. And this is about, uh, the working title was Some of These Stories Are Based on Fact, um, they were not written down at the time, so it's my recollection, referring to logbooks, diaries, uh, that sort of thing, um, as to whether the dates and faces and so on are correct. And the stories are, some are silly, uh, some are sad, uh, some are serious, and others are just downright stupid and showing how youth hasn't progressed at all. Um, and uh, um, it's about people and places and planes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Any questions? Where can, we, where, can we, where can we get a copy of your book? From me, right here, right now. <laughs> <laughs> I used to uh, reach all aircraft at a high school at the start of uh, 1980. Yep. Um, sometimes the sidewalks and the blunties Yes. Did you ever do that? Um, no. <laughs> but I've known people who did. <laughs> yes, there's, uh, that, that did happen. Um, I uh, uh, conducted a um, uh, summary of evidence into young Mark Wingrove who picked up a telephone wire with his wingtip uh, out at Raumaia Weapons Range uh, one day and then appeared at the court of court martial as a character witness for him. Um, and uh, then uh, also, um, I don't know whether I've got the name correctly, I think Steve Pilkington came back from a low level trip in an A4 where he'd been up in the uh, inland low flying area, so it goes up as far as Waikaramoana. Yes, he had bits of tree in a wingtip of a skyhawk. Um, yeah, he didn't know he hit the tree at that stage. Um, Yep, we were authorised uh, to fly down to 50 feet MSD, which is minimum separation distance, so a bubble around the aeroplane, uh, you had to be 50 feet from the nearest object. Uh, that was pretty lenient, and we got bloody good at it. And yes, we did have the odd uh, hitting the ground uh, thing, but very few and far between. Yeah, it's meant to be, 50, it's not 50 feet above ground level, it's 50 feet Minimum separation distance from anything that's in that. You could fly under Harbour Bridge then? You could do, yes, but I don't think that. No, I think we had to be outside of urban areas and so on. built up areas weren't approved. Yeah. yeah. You would have also had some big refuels on aeroplanes, uh, which is the, the euphemistic way of saying the pilot must have landed short of gas. And uh, we'd, particularly when I got onto supervisory positions and so on, it was always good to have the honest feedback from guys saying, they did a big refuel on such and such an aeroplane because then you could follow up as to why it was 
and did the pilot realise at the time that they actually uh, exceeded the squadron minimus and didn't land with sufficient fuel? On civil, on civil rules, the vampire taxi call would have been preceded by a mayday. <laughs> due, to, due to low fuel. Yeah. So in, in those days of going from the vampires to the skywalks, you know, I've always loved watching the skywalks and their practices, yes. and shows and stuff. You know, that um, ability to fly that low and stuff, there wouldn't have been much in the way of manuals for you guys in training. A lot of it would have been learned as you went. Yes, it would. We got a lot better about writing things down later on. Uh, word processes and so on led to that, that people could much more readily uh, record what their experiences were and then um, um, we could devise a better way of teaching things. And uh, one of the big things, uh, if you know about probability of kill, when you're wargaming things, you roll the dice, probability of kill, well, the PK of the ground is one. Okay? You're, if you hit the ground, your chances of dying are about 100%. And uh, so, yes, we've had odd ones with bits of tree or wire or something like that. Uh, they were pretty close to the ground. Yeah, so it was treated pretty seriously. And uh, it brought about a new advent as well when we got into having HUD video, head-up display video recorders, little 8mm video recorder. Beautiful training aid, absolutely fantastic. Come back and re redo a flight. It'd get all the view from the outside world, it'd get all the symbology on the head-up display, and it would record all the audio whether it was radio, in or out, or intercom. You could also dictate notes to yourself. Uh, so if you we ended up in a furball or training thing, as you were separating out to go into the next one, you could, um, you could make notes to yourself as to what you did that didn't work or did work, and so we could improve the squadron tactics there. But we also had to make sure that they were not used for disciplinary purposes, because if someone goofed off, we wanted to be able to learn from it. And so it wasn't blaming, unless someone went out and did something willfully uh, to do that, but it was a, a mistake or an error or a misjudgment, and we wanted to learn from that so as we could apply it to future stuff to make it safer, to make us operationally better and to make it safer. Yeah, but it's got to get out into the squadron yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that we can all take advantage from it. Yeah. Did you ever do what the refuels fully are? Uh, not fully armed, no. Um, we practice hot refuels. Uh, hot refuels, um, I don't know whether this is what you're talking about. Air to air refueling? No, no. On, hot hot on, refuels. On the yep. So, um, taxi back in in the Skyhawk, and uh, you'd have people uh, refueling you uh, through the probe at the end of the runway. So, you could just turn around and go again. Um, and the Israelis had it down, uh, they were having times on the ground with their A4s. The full gas and full rearm was eight minutes. Okay, uh, between touchdown and takeoff. Uh, again, um, the one of the, probably the uh, yeah the, uh, the one of the better chances that they had. A pair of Skyhawks on the way back from Singapore went unserviceable and stopped off at uh, Townsville. They were delayed from there, and we were coming Nowra <coughs> to um, to Ahaki the next day. They got airborne early out of Nowra, out of uh, Townsville, and came down to Nowra. And they said, we'll come with you across the Tasman. We'd been prepared to do a double tap with the P3 to get the other guys over there later. They said, no, we're ready to go. Can we just hop refuel and uh, we'll be ready to go? And we said, oh, but you won't have cleared customs and all that. And they said, yep, we did that this morning at Townsville. And so they were really geared up. And so this uh, unserviceability that delayed two aircraft, they had actually off their own initiative 
got out of bed early. Uh, the ground crew had all worked there to fix the aircraft overnight. Um, they uh, got airborne sort of at dawn from Townsville down to Nowra, so that's a two and a half hour flight or something like that. Uh, gassed there, uh, so without even opening the, the cockpits, gassed and then did the Tasman crossing uh, with us all. And so we all arrived back at eight aeroplanes uh, from the exercise. Bloody good, eh? <laughs> How long did it take you to get across the Tasman? Oh, you're slow in the Skyhawk. 0.7 mark versus most airliners will cruise at 0.8. So 7 miles a minute versus 8 miles a minute uh, um, for, the, for the airlines. So um, 3 hours, 2.5 to 3 hours. The longest I ever did was about four and a quarter because we were pushing 100 knots of headwind to, uh, to get across. No cabin service? No. <laughs> no. no toilets? Num bum. <laughs> yeah. I've got a question about... Bum upside down. Yes. I've got a question about on the cover of your book. Yes. On the harbour, it's got your name. Yes. Does that come from the final flight when they all, all the aircraft? No, no. Flight? I was in Singapore instructing in the Singapore Air Force when that happened. That final flight happened. No, that was from um, the uh, the time when the 1974 fuel crisis and uh, the red checkers were cancelled. We were all worked up to do it, and so I was checkers five. So it's a bit like being selected by the for the All Blacks. Okay, you don't actually become an All Black until you run onto the pitch in the first match. So we were all worked up to go, didn't do a public performance, so therefore not a red checker. So I was checkers five, I got chosen to go around and do a whole lot of solo displays around the country in that year and the year after um, as uh, a solo display harbour. Hence the, um, the, the checkered cow and uh, my name on the side. When the harbour shifted up to Wigram, uh, from Wigram to Ohakia, I was the OC of the flying wing. So I was looking after 75 squadron, 2 squadron, uh, 14 squadron, and then PTS CFS uh, moved in. And uh, I got a call from the senior NCO in charge of the historic flight. And he said, sir, you might like to come down and have morning tea with us. Now it's not very often that a wing commander would be summoned by a sergeant to come down and have morning tea with him. And so I thought, hmm, I better nosey on down there. So I noseyed on down and they had this side panel off the harbour, the engine access panel, uh, there with my name on it. And so uh, they said, we thought you might like this. And I said, oh, you know, yeah, thanks, thanks very much for bringing it to my attention, but you know, it's not me to take away a bit of Her Majesty's kit. And um, so I said, oh, that's right, I'll put it back in the hangar then. They said, we've got plenty of them, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's just maintaining one harbour. And so um, the next day when I opened the boot of my car, it was in there. <laughs> so I've still got it. And this uh, photo, which was taken in about 74 or 75, um, the aircraft, 76, is owned by Rex Brereton at Fielding. And um, uh, we reposed this photograph and he was going to fly me into Palmerston North in the, in the harbour. But the crosswind was outside limits. So just got a reposed photograph. I looked a little older than that in the reposed one. And, um, uh, he took me over there in his Cherokee, and so uh, yeah, lovely. But that's yes, I have this. It's uh, sitting at home. So you haven't managed to fly a Harvard yet? Uh, no, I haven't flown a Harvard since my uh, Air Force days, and it was one of the last aircraft that I flew in. Peter Cochran took me for a ride in uh, Harvard One uh, Five. Yeah. So you would have been in the team that got cancelled uh, with John Watt. Was he in the? Uh, I don't recall. 
Yes, I think so. Uh, no, John? It would have been in his era or immediately after. Yeah. Isn't it silly? You're in your own logbook. You don't note who the other members are. I might have put four out of five or five out of five for what I was in the formation at the time, but you don't record the other person's, the other formation members' names and so on on there. So I couldn't reconstruct that. Now I could probably go back to the authorization books and figure it out, but that would be quite a, quite a bit of research. Sure. Yeah. You mentioned Skyhawk hours running, What's the line of the Skyhawk? 7,000 uh, flight hours on the, uh, the wing structure. Now, we, we refurbished the wings, so got another 7,000 hours out of them. But by then you started to get into fuselage longerons and all that sort of stuff uh, that haven't had a, a proven life for them. And also, of course, we modified the aircraft quite highly, put a lot more weight in the nose, so it changed the stress that the aircraft uh, undergoes, and so we were really moving into unknown territory uh, there. Um, the, the, uh, flying, the flying wing, the strike wing, was disbanded in 2001. Um, we would have been phasing out aircraft from about 2004 to 2007. And that was the reason that the F-16s were going to come in there, so we'd still have a viable Skyhawk fleet until we had the F-16s. And that was the, one of the last projects I was working on, was the acquisition of the F-16s, uh, whilst I was in air staff in Wellington. But not to come to fruition. Uh, very sadly, yeah. Because yeah. we'll never get that role back again. Never, ever. It's too expensive in terms of both money and manpower. Um, and the manpower, I mean, you'd kill lots of guys getting to the experience level that's required to, to be there. It'd have to be a, a very carefully orchestrated thing. Um, I mean, uh, 2001, and we are, so that's 10 years, so normally we would have trained um, uh, four Skyhawk pilots a year, so that's 40. I forget how many Skyhawk pilots we had, it was fewer than 200, I think, total, all over. And of course, a lot of them are dead, a lot of them are old. Um, and uh, so on now, so no, we'll never get it back. If you go to the Warbird hangar at Ardmore, there's Zero a nine. There's, there's, there's a, there's a um, on the wall, there's a list of all the Skyhawk pilots. Yep. It's such a small yes. number. I mean, there's probably been more astronauts than there have been Skyhawk uh, pilots in the air. In training, astronauts, yes, but probably not uh, flowing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I must uh, figure it out one day. Uh, there as to what it's it quite was. amazing when it's 30 years in service. So. Yes, but you see, we were, we, we were training maximum about four per year. Four through 12, 120. Yeah, it must have been some bigger years than that, but uh, that was about it. I think you're interested in your maritime strike uh, description. Yes. Did you go into what the Argentinians were doing in the Falklands? And oh, absolutely. Whether they were up to it or not? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, uh, the first thing is that the Argentinians were, um, uh, were given the spooks by uh, the Harriers talking about viffing and so on, uh, vectoring in forward flight. Uh, well, the Skyhawk and the uh, Harrier are much of a muchness um, in terms of size of aircraft. Uh, the Skyhawk will outrange a Sea Harrier without any problem whatsoever. Um, it'll probably just about beat it for straight out speed unless it's got a lot of drag on. The Skyhawk pilots and uh, the Argentinians, and I've got to watch out, I've got an Argentinian son-in-law. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, anyway. Um, 
the, um, the Skyhawk pilots were getting lots of reports that their bombs were hitting the target and being successful. And they were verifying that because when they looked in their mirrors or turned and looked after they'd uh, bombed their fleet, um, they could see and they could report, and, and truly, that ships were healing in the water and were on fire, a lot of smoke coming out of them. And of course what that was, and they learned by the right to know people, BBC World Service, um, of uh, the fact that the bombs were going in dud. And what they were seeing, the ships healing, and the plume of smoke out of them was in fact the gas turbines coming up to speed and the ship starting to manoeuvre after they'd been hit because they're waiting for the second wave or preparing for the second wave, trying to get guns to bear, that sort of thing. And so they were unaware that their four second delay on their bomb fusing was too long and the bombs weren't armed before they went into the ships. And so the bombs were sitting in there safe as houses. Uh, so just making a, a hole about you know 15 inches in diameter. Um, and that's not going to worry a ship. Um, and so um, through getting this bit that the bombs dudded, they're able to say, oh, crikey, if we come back to half a second delay on our fuses, so the arm time on the fuses, then the bombs will go off, and they did. Um, so they, they had pretty good tactics. Um, they were, say, dead scared of the Harriers, and they should have just treated them as another adversary. Um, I sailed on the, um, the Invincible shortly after the Falklands crisis um, and uh, got some introduction to the Sea Harrier pilots and then we exercised with them later. Um, on one particular exercise in Malaysia, um, we were up against the Royal Navy there, half of whom were Fort Falklands veterans. And they came into the fray thinking that the Kiwi Skyhawks were going to be easy meat. Um, the kill ratio in our favour was 14 to 1. And uh, that was good tactics, uh, um, aggressive handling of our aircraft, and the ability to fly exceptionally low over the water without hitting it. And um, yeah, as I say, we, we got them. And when, when their carrier gets bomb, uh, bomb attacks on it, they get uh, pretty worried because that's what they're there meant to defend the carrier and therefore the fleet. Yes. Um, the the closest that we got was simulating um, Soviet era um, anti-shipping missiles, so air-to-surface uh, missiles, where we would go up and the P3 would play like it was the um, missile-equipped aircraft, and uh, when they came round in range, we in close formation would launch off and fly the missile profile, so that the frigates or the ships could get used to defending themselves against the loitering. Uh, missile carrier that was outside of their engagement range uh, and then get the missile launch and see us as the missiles. So that was the closest that we did. Yeah, but we did a lot of anti-shipping work, uh, particularly after we got the, we do, re refined it a whole lot, after Two Squadron was deployed to Nowra uh, in New South Wales where they operated for 10 years um, to do a lot of anti-shipping work uh, with the Australian Navy. Were you at Israel training? No. No, just um, Israeli, uh, uh, of course, we're, were big users of the A4, and so uh, we were interested in that. And when we upgraded the Skyhawk, 
we got what we called a hotshot trainer, which was a, um, uh, a PlayStation, uh, if you like, that replicated the aircraft. So you had a television screen in front of you that replicated the outside world. It was very low-tech um, stuff. It wasn't, you know, um, wrap-around screens and so on. And you had another one down beside you that showed you the plan view of uh, what was going on. We had the two uh, stations, we had three of them, two of them side by side, in which you could play against each other, or with each other, against a computer-driven thing. Or we had the third station was over in Nowra, and uh, down the telephone lines and so on, we could actually play those two against that one, or that one against these two, uh, and so on there, to develop the tactics for it. So not much in the cockpit worked, but we had a representative control column and uh, throttle, which had I think it was a total of 11 switches on it to drive the ra uh, radar um, um, and weapon selection stuff. So you had to get used to playing the piccolo, as the guys called it, uh, playing the piccolo, as well as um, air brakes and guns and rocket switches and so on uh, on there. So you were pretty busy in that. And of course, one of the things that happened is as you get younger guys through who are used to playing computer games and so on there, that was no trouble to them. Do it. Oh God, let me use that now. Which one's for... <laughs> which one's for... This? Oh, I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> and uh, so, um, yeah, that... Because you mentioned this eight minutes refueling. Hmm. You know why they were so fast? Well, first of all, you throw peacetime constraints out the, uh, out the window. And, for instance, we would not allow arming and fueling at the same time. Because they, they were only seven minutes away from Damascus. Oh, yes. Yes, exactly. And... Uh, so they wanted to be on the ground and airborne again um, as well um, to, to do that. And it made, um, it made complete sense uh, in, in their situation. In our situation, where we weren't in a fighting war, uh, the worst we were was at exercise, and we could do the same thing in about 35 minutes. Yeah. It's a nice museum in Bersheba. Unfortunately, I've never been there, uh, but would love to, yes. It's a Thank you very much. Thank you, Ricky. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Hope.